Hi, this is Andy, and thank you for joining me for the Next Stage Radicals podcast, where each month I'm joined by a Next Stage Radical, someone who is hands-on in the work of discovering new and better ways of working, challenging the conventions of Management 1.0 in order to move the world of work to the next stage. In each episode, I invite my guests to share their warts and all stories about what works and what doesn't, and what it's taking for them to make work work better. This month's radical is Cathy Evans, Chief Executive at Children England, an all-round unstoppable force for good. Cathy and I first met through a membership of the Human Learning Systems Collaborative, which incidentally you can find out more about at humanlearning.systems. I have to say, from the very first time we spoke, I felt a kinship with Cathy, which I'd describe as coming from both a sense that we shared a worldview and mission, but also that we shared a bit of a predilection for a touch of mischief. Um, so I think that bodes well for today. Uh, we've had a few good laughs along the way. Uh, I'm looking forward to many more of those in uh, in this podcast. Um, so Cathy, welcome to Next Stage Radicals. Um, Thanks, Andy. Pleasure to be here. It's really great to have you here. I've been so looking forward to this. Um, shall we just get straight into it? Let's go. Cool. So you know where I like to start, Cathy. I'd like you to just explore for us. What's your radical idea or vision? Have at us. <laughs> okay, well, I first of all, I'm, I'm not sure that my idea is radical. Um, so, you know, I think it's natural. Uh, but then that's probably, that's probably how everyone feels about their beliefs. And secondly, I just, you know, throughout this, I don't take credit for inventing ideas that I haven't learned from others. You know, uh, most most of everything I know or believe I learned from other people. So I'm not claiming, uh, you know, intellectual property here. <laughs> but but uh, what I love about this question is that it really made me think because because uh, I can talk about Children England's vision uh, and I will. Um, but this is addressed to me. So I kind of. It made me think, what's my vision <laughs> for yeah. the world, if you like? Um, and uh, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so I think what I've been doing throughout my career and kind of what what interests me most is I, I, I thinking about society as an ecosystem. So I'm not an expert in ecology, um, but I'm very influenced by what we need to learn about ecosystems and our impact on them and how out of balance we are um, with the planet Mm. but that's how I feel about society too I think society you know how we live our lives together as as in units in 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 small networks in nations and on the globe is it is an ecosystem we're interdependent with each other Um, none of us could exist without other people not not physically possible Mm. Uh, and if we haven't learned that from the last year, then I don't know when we will. We need each other. Um, so, so I think about society as an ecosystem, and for many years, it's felt like it's in its own version of climate crisis. Mm. You know, it's so out of balance. Uh, you know, things that should that we, you know that 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 we we known because we created some of these things that have gone wrong. Uh, you know, money. Is something that human beings created to help us do things and now the circulation of money has gone so bad <laughs> so wrong that we're creating deserts of poverty mm. and melting polar ice caps of hoarded wealth 
well, how did we let all of that get out of control? Money is our, our creation. And if it's not working for society, uh, then, then we've, got, we've got that wrong. We've, we've failed to appreciate our ecosystem. You know, similarly, things like races, endemic racism, it's, it's, it's a toxic pollutant mm. in our society. Um, and it dam therefore it damages all of us. It damages how society can live together and work together and whether it's sustainable or life-threatening. Um, so, so, so my work and my thinking go to all sorts of places. It goes to e economics, it goes to sociology, it goes to, to like thinking about community organizations and charities. That's what Children England is focused on, obviously, uh, is children first, but uh, charities and what, what, an, what space charities occupy in society and have done for hundreds of years. Um, and there are two things that kind of come out of that. Um, we've, been, we've been doing some brilliant work with young, being led by young, young leaders about how to, how to better design society for the future thinking about beverage, thinking about the welfare state, thinking about collective systems and, uh, and using their insights. Um, because uh, <coughs> uh, I've worked with children and about children all of my life, all of my adult life. And um, I've always been at pains to say to people, you know, I love children, but I'm not sentimental about it. <laughs> you know, about childhood. Children are, uh, are tough and resilient and challenging and all sorts of different things. I'm not in the protective of vulnerable people category of, of kind of fans of children. Why I love children uh, is because they're new people. They're new people in this society. So the moment that they arrive, uh, what our society looks like to them is really important intelligence. It's really, it's really important that we should be able to explain society to them because they've got to got to operate within it but how often do we as adults come up to the like the stuff that we need to explain to children when they say why why is it like that why is that happening why are there homeless people you know why is unfair why that, that sounds really unfair why does that still happen you know they they are the most most natural confronters of what we've got wrong and what we shouldn't accept and so I, lo I love working with children for that reason, and that's what we've been doing with them at the Child Fair State. But uh, as part of that, we came across, gone into all sorts of areas that I hadn't been into before. Uh, and one of them was looking at neighborhood and urban design. And we came across uh, some amazing work about designing child-centered cities, led from Arup, the civil engineering firm. And they've done it in, in enough places to have developed, you know, kind of help for local areas to be child-centered in their urban design. And one of the phrases that I came across in reading their work was the idea of the child as an indicator species. In, in, you know, and, and that chimed with this idea that we're, you know, society is an ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. And, and if our society is an ecosystem, then children are the indicator species of whether it's going all right or not and how you can make it work. So in ecology, in a, in a particular area, a sort of a, a valley, a desert, a kind of a, a forest, there will be indicator species who occupy a space within that ecosystem where you can tell if they're, thri if they're thriving, the ecosystem is getting healthy. If they're 
if they're struggling or if they're at risk of extinction, then that is going to kill that ecosystem. And I think children are the indicator species of our societal ecosystem. You've just uh, taken some things for me straight away there. Sorry to yeah. jump in. I don't want to <laughs> no, stop no, no, you, but just, just to sort of point out a resonance that, um, I mean, it's like the canary in the mine, almost the indicator species, isn't it? But um, yeah. but I remember the first time I sort of read some data about rising um, issues of child mental health and so on. And I thought, I didn't have the language you've just given it, but immediately the way that landed with me was exactly like you've described. It was, well, you know, if that's not the sign of a societal problem, I don't know what is. Um, and the the other thing that really sort of struck a chord with for me there was, um, you know, over this last couple of years when we've had Brexit and pandemics and all the rest of it, I mean, for sure, looking at my kids has been the clearest sign of, you know, what's that doing to us, you know? Yeah. Um, so... Yeah. So sorry, yeah. I interrupted, but it was well, just no, but to point I mean, out that, that resonance. Yeah. I everyone everyone I ever described that to has a similar reaction because it's so it's 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 as soon as you hear it, it's kind of organically obvious, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> of course, children are are indicator species. You know, so so for both reasons, because they're new people and can tell us what's so insane about the way we organise society right now, and they often do, and then mm. they get cast as rebels or they have to or they have to get used to it. But but also because to every child is our chance to get it right. You know, every, every child is a new person. It's our chance to do, do it better. This collective living together thing, mm, <laughs> this mm. helping people through difficulties, understanding the vicissitudes of life, better equipping you to navigate them. You know, every child is a chance for us to do that better so that so that they're in they're they're in pole position to create a better world as they get as they get more and more agency. Yeah. So so that's my my child centered bit of the philosophy. The charity side of it is more uh, similar, but it's similar. You know, I kind of I have huge respect for the importance of co commerce and enterprise, public uh, duty, and for uh, voluntary action. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been working in charities for for most of that time, not all of it, but most of it uh, since I became an adult. And it's a it's a funny, idiosyncratic old ecosystem, the voluntary sector. You know, it's always difficult to talk about it as one thing in the first place. Um, but I just feel it's really it's a really important part of that ecosystem of being able to invent and take action on things for which there is no natural market you know we it, it's where you you aren't limited by the idea that what what you want to do and what you want to get people engaged with that has to have a price and it has to have a profit margin and so on uh, you know i you know I'm, I'm i have huge respect for the disciplines and the creativity of private private enterprise mm -hmm. um but you know tackling loneliness is not a not a natural market yeah. uh, you know and the voluntary sector is where people can do things and try things because they believe it might help and so I, I love that that concept and the space and the kind of you know the complementarity of having the space for voluntary action to emerge to to see if it's got legs to see if it helps um, and and I also believe passionately in the importance of good public policy and public duty to citizens. You know, that's that's 
part of why we wanted to revisit the welfare state is because it made a big difference. Yeah. The welfare state made a big difference to whole generations of people, to their quality of life, to their careers, etc. So, so I'm horrified basically to find myself in a sector which has become so polluted with bad economics and the assumption that everything is a transaction. Well, that's what I that's, that's to where we came there. together. Uh, yes. You know, in terms of how did I get into human learning systems? It's because I see the inappropriate proliferation of market ideas ruining really good work and really good ideas. Yeah. So that, that's what you mean by not a natural market, that it's the, the marketization of something that doesn't lend itself to marketization, yeah. is it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's obviously markets aren't actually natural. They're not in nature. <laughs> yeah. But by a natural market, my, as my dad used to explain it to me, is just something for which, you know, if you have something that other people want and they would place a value on it, they can pay you for it and they're free not to if they don't. Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't think we need charitable hairdressers or state restaurants. <laughs> they are, I'm free to choose and to pay as much or as little as I think that's worth to me. Got you. Got you. Yeah. But, but, um, people who are abandoned and at home and need help <laughs> if it, whether or not they can pay for it um it shouldn't be the question of whether they get it yeah, yeah. you know yeah i'm totally with you i mean i really understand that this is a bit of a, a tangent but I, i've done quite a bit of work in insurance and very often when i'm working in insurance i think mm, this is a really interesting one because it's sort of commonly assumed to be a private sector enterprise but does that make sense when you start to think about the nature of what insurance is trying to do um, yeah. and anyway I've never thought about tangential. that yeah <laughs> um, but I, I hear you and I, and it, it's another recurring theme in some of these podcasts that I think talk to a lot of folk on this about the, the world for all sorts of valid reasons seems to have created a technocratic infrastructure like markets mm. Um, and those have had their place and those have done their good to get us this far. But but it feels like we're sort of straining at the leash of those things. We need a relational infrastructure or something to, to come into place. I see you nodding. Yeah. Any thoughts? So many thoughts. You know, I, I, I know that, well, certainly speaking from the charity services sector, you know, this this idea that that competitive decision making was would sharpen everything up and make things better. That, that's gone back 30 years and, and while it's it's not what I believe I do think I really understand why it, it looked like the right thing to do mm. at a time when I think across charities public and public services there was probably quite a lot of institutionalized self-satisfaction that what we do is is how it's done mm. you know we've been doing it for years like, like this so that's why we're experts so we, we should just be able to keep doing it. And I think that if, if that kind of organizational ossification, you know, uh, or, or kind of self-referentialism uh, is, is to be broken up and, and disrupted, then saying you're gonna actually have to prove that and compete with other people who think they're better is a disruptive, is a disruptor. Mm. It's, a, it's a shock to a self satisfied system mm. so I get it I get why that felt like the right step to shake things up a bit and yeah. to say I actually I'm not sure that you are thinking about your service users or whether you're doing any good can you prove it <laughs> yeah. so so I, I, I really do get it at, of its time 
as a as a sort of a philosophical challenge but we've ended up in a in an awful place yeah. <laughs> by thinking that is how all decisions about such things should be made um you know and an awful place in in ways that i don't think anyone could have been imagining at the time when they started doing that yeah well absolutely because it seems kind of like this perfectly clear and reasonable logic to it doesn't it but the, the yeah. connection you just made for me is it's sort of exactly i think the same logic as we've um as we continue to apply to our children as they go into school of you know, rather than teach thinking skills, let's just cattle prod them into they better sort themselves out and pass the test. <laughs> yes, it there'll be a it, lot of teachers it, that don't like what I've said there, I'm sure. But yeah, but isn't it? But also to introduce them really early to the idea that it's not in the inherent joy of learning that we want them to have. Yeah, it's yeah. that you are in an inherently competitive ecosystem. So be at the top of the class, or at least at the middle if you can be please don't be bottom bad things happen to people who come come in at the bottom and and children internalize that so quickly yeah you know and and you know i'm not someone who who who's sort of naively thinks that the whole world can operate without competitive forces it's a fact you know for competition even co competition in our genes mm. is part of how we got to evolve into into what we are yeah but Social progress is determined by collaboration, not by competition. Yeah. No, it may be biological evolution is determined by competition, competition to mate with the most most healthy looking uh, of your of your species. <laughs> but but, you know, things like fire and wheels and so on, they're inherently collaborative. Yeah, yeah. So so. So yeah, we have to have those things in balance. And I'm fascinated by the learning that's emerging about how much better children actually learn and internalize things if they're collaborating on that, on discovering it that rather than just in just reading it or, you know, the, so this brilliant work on, on souls, S-O-L-E, um, which I can't remember the, but it's uh, Sugata Mitra. And he's been looking at how how complex and conceptual learning from can ha can happen even in other languages that the children don't speak really rapidly if you get a team of four children trying to answer a question yeah. like and doing research to find out the answer yeah. Yeah. what would that mean if we didn't you know if we actually said we, we, we could press rapid learn button for children by by abandoning our idea that they're in a competitive hierarchy you yeah. know so. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I want to jump back to the, the phrase you used a minute ago because I loved it. It was something like social evolution depends on collaboration. Yeah. That that's um that's another great phrase I'm stealing from you, Kathy. So just to uh, make explicit what the other um or the, another one that I've stolen from you is a declaration of <laughs> there's, no, there's no intellectual property in words. Oh good. That's well it's I my phrase. Them, that's now. why I love them so much. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's when we, I think it might be the first time we met, you used the phrase declaration of interdependence, which I think yeah. is sort of a through line in what we're talking about today. But I, I love that. And it, it just prompted for me that those two phrases that I've mentioned, um, that, you know, while I agree with your point that, you know, we need to get competition and collaboration and balance as a place for each, I caught a glimpse of something like, um, 
competition is sort of atomizing it, it brings us back down to individual levels and of course yeah. collaboration is the exact opposite of that um and if so if it's a sort of social relational infrastructure that we need for the kinds of um services and support you're talking about mm. it's almost obvious then isn't it that competition ain't going to do it that's right and and i you know among many fascinating conversations i've been having through the pandemic when one of my members made a point in in our discussions about strategy and also actually about the procurement green paper which obviously was something that happened while we were surviving a pandemic um and and she was she was saying this at, at the really human level mm. this thing she said look the thing about public services of any kind any any public service for a real human being who who wants something from it or needs something from it cannot happen unless they actively engage. This is not, it's not like vaccinating someone, <laughs> you know, as long as you can get the person there, then the vaccine is doing the work on its own once it's, once it's in. Um, but whether it, whether it's working with alcohol or substance misuse, whether it's, whether it's trying to enable people to, to retain their homes and not and at risk of eviction, whether it's trying to support them to understand what's going on in their family life and whether there's a, if there's a risk that their children go into care, how to avoid it. Uh, no one can sit passively and receive the benefit of that service. Mm -hmm. No one. So if you if you if your whole model of service or if your whole raison d'etre <laughs> as a social worker, as a teacher, as a uh, you know as a community worker, as a family support worker your whole reason for being a professional who's doing a good job is dependent on the other person in actively engaging with you then it's never going to be accurate to say that you did it yeah yeah right um, so so that whole thing that we've got into in terms of kind of attribution and claim of impact and you know yeah. you could do the same as a, a you know i remember from my practice days i started my work as a uh, you know, I started my career working with children in children's homes and then I trained in counselling and went on to work with them in secure units. I could take the same approach and the same skill set that I have and apply it to all eight boys in the unit at the same time and only half of them would respond in the way that I would hope. Mm, mm. You know, and that's so that's not a variation in what I was doing, although I learned to vary. <laughs> for precisely this reason it's like that you know it's not a model of working that worked on 50 percent of of the children yeah. it's that we were developing different relationships constantly with as as individuals yeah. so if any of them made progress and started addressing their issues through our counseling or with somebody else the idea of me claiming credit for that is so inappropriate yeah yeah <laughs> You know, yeah, that's it, that's the the game, and that, that is part of this ecosystem that we've developed for public services. Prove your impact. That's what you'll sell in your next tendering round. Absolutely. I mean, it, it seems to me that it's dysfunctional on multiple levels, and I, I think that's what you're pointing to. But there's the you know procurement commissioning relationship that you're talking about, and how that's dysfunctional. But but it also seems to me a natural extension of that um, market type competitive mentality is that mm. we, we end up for example calling 
um, providers providers and therefore making citizens into consumers which isn't yes. the co-productive thing that you're talking about is it absolutely yeah yeah i mean i you know if i if i'm the consumer of an addiction service it's my it's my addiction it's my choice to go there but if i'm the consumer of an addiction service and just go there and expect to be healed it's mm. not going to happen mm. you know and any any you know all all the practitioners i ever speak to know this inherently you know they've got to get the hard thing we we used to find it with counseling you know regularly was people seeking counseling because they knew they needed help mm. but being really surprised at how much work they had to do mm. <laughs> once they were in that relationship you know uh, so so how do we end up how do we end up giving credit to the school for a child's grades when they've that that child has been working their, themselves to the bone often to to mental health problems yeah. to get them you know wh which bit of of our systemic thinking did we think it, it did we decide that school has produced those grades that's what makes it a good school yeah yeah it's peculiar isn't it i mean the, the other thing in that space and i think it, it's really clear i think in the example of schools but it applies in all sorts of public services is the perhaps unintended um, consequence of the marketization stuff is that we expect progress to be at a linear rate oh, it's the same yes. across people and communities. So as kids, you're in key stage one, you're in key stage two, therefore the strange linear trajectory of your failing if you're not reaching that level at that time in your life. But of course, yeah. we develop differently, don't we? So We do, we, do, we develop differently, particularly children. I mean, ch children and their acquisition of different different cognitive skills and abilities, different physical, you know, uh, adaptability, but, but also everything, the, the beauty of childhood is that everything is a phase, mm, mm. <laughs> you know, and children can go from a really difficult phase straight into a kind of firing on all cylinders phase. Mm. And it, those phases and the variability in them isn't, isn't built in, let alone how they may be adapting to the circumstance, their circumstances of life outside of it. But um, I think, I think what that raises, I mean, the whole uh it, you know what we've what we've done is essentially to to apply an industrialized manufacturing mindset yeah. to human services you know and so it's had loads of consequences not just claiming credit for what for what your service users actually put a lot of effort into doing for themselves but also you know it means that we've ended up valuing scale and uh, you know, so an organization that has a really significant number of contracts and can say we've we've successfully delivered 80, 89% of them, you know, has an impressive metric compared with one small organization that's just kept trying to do what it does best in one place. We've ended up with a, a, a fetish for the idea that evaluation is an objective, quantitative matter. So that so that really small, like one person who just is trying to do a really good job of personal care with uh, with uh, their their disabled adult, they don't have the kind of the data to suggest, well, I know that I'm effective mm -hmm. because, you know, the more people that you can put through the same thing, you know, it's the it's the it's the payment by results, uh, you know, is the zenith of it, yeah. you know. How many people have you put through the same, the same factory process that you've repeated as reliably as possible for maximum integrity 
of of uh, you know product. Yeah. So how many people go through that process and come out the other end as you wanted it, you know? And the bigger your numbers and the bigger your stats, the more robust we consider your evaluation evidence. You know, like that's that's what you'll get paid for. So so I, I'm I've one of the things that has always always stuck in my head with children and that batch processing. You know, you're in in, in a year determined by your date of birth mm -hmm. and then you go through as part of the same batch and you whether or not you're a you're a you know a, a a successful end product or not will be done by reference to who was the worst in the batch <laughs> but that's it your fate is is assigned to the batch yeah, yeah. and and uh and th I th I, that all came to the fore last year with the algorithm scandal and people realizing, hold on a minute. So this, this, you know, you're not actually even referring to the work that I did do. Mm. You've just taken it as a proxy to map me against my badge. Mm. Mm. And somewhere along the way, I think everyone suddenly realized how how unjust that is. Yeah. Yeah. Not just the parents of the children who were saying, I just, you know, like, so what was your assessment of my actual work instead of judging me by last year's output and this year's spread? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, actually, that's not entirely different from what's been happening for years. Yeah. You know, and so I, I wonder if we've gone gone through the Rubicon on that one because it was so patently, like the national. I was fascinated by the national reaction. Yeah. Because but it was I, gut, it was a gut instinct. It's like you can't you can't put kids through this process yeah. and that much stress only to say we didn't judge your work. <laughs> we we match you onto onto a pattern. That's not on. It's not on at all. I, I, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to see where that goes, isn't it? And um, I, I suppose one of my sort of slight fears around that, though, is it would be quite easy to do um, a better version of the wrong thing. Um, you yeah. Know, and the spirit of next stage radicals, I suppose, is you know how do we learn the real lesson? Because you know there are peculiarities if we're just talking about um, the assessment of children for a moment that. You know, you almost couldn't make it up that we make perhaps the most um, life impacting set of exams you'll ever do um, arrive into your life at a time when your hormones are going crazy. And, you know, everything in your being is telling you don't sit in an exam hall and do that, you know. Yeah. Um, so. But also, so, I, you know, this this is probably a bit higher level than what. Than, than what the precise alternative is but you know the thing about children is that they are all whatever their abilities whatever that whatever their aptitudes or interests they are all hardwired to learn mm. children are learning constantly whether they're consciously doing it or not they learn through observation they learn through mimicry they learn by just being in a, a, a situation and absorbing everything that's going on in it mm. and it, it so, so the whole idea of all of the teaching is done at a school <laughs> that that you know all of the things that children do or don't learn is is de dependent on how a school gets it into you mm. it's just not it's just not accurate yeah. so so the, the, if if you understood that you know if the purpose of education were understood to be to harness and stimulate children's innate learning to keep them curious, to 
keep giving them different opportunities to see if this is something that interests you different ways to learn the same stuff mm. you know they, you know that you will often see that expressed as kind of what what about topic-based learning in primary school but you know children can learn maths through art mm. you know they don't have to be sat down and, and and comply with the curriculum way the approved way of learning but um, but the, the, you know if we can if we end up unfortunately we end up with children too many of whom readjust their idea to think that learning is a chore yeah. instead of fun <laughs> and instead of something that all of them can do how do we end up with children going into secondary school thinking I'm no good at this yeah, yeah. and I guess back to something you said earlier you know each child being the opportunity to if you like create the future we want yeah um, exactly. I think what you're describing here are some of the processes of sort of institutionalizing and norming the next generation into the last generation's ideals rather than that's right the future and you know I'm the daughter of a, of a career teacher to you know so I like it was the only thing she ever wanted to do in her whole life and she stuck to it I'm not saying there's no skill in it and I'm not saying that there's no professionalism in it. Mm. I'm saying that all of the best teachers understand that, that the child is bringing the energy for learning. Mm. Mm. And if they are, if you if you have some who aren't mm. or who are struggling with this sub, sub, subject or something, then the challenge is yours to find different ways to make it more accessible. Yeah. Yeah. But teachers that I, you know, over the time that my mum was a teacher and this, you know, the, the increasing sort of measurement idea of the value of what they do yeah. came to dominate now, there are lots of teachers who know that the grades the grades and the measurements and the sats are not the measure of their quality of their work or of their children yeah. we now even got the phenomenon of primary schools writing specifically to their pupils to say you know sorry about these sats they're not how we see you. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. know you're brilliant, and we here are some here are some other things we know about you. Just because we want you to know, these stats are not the measure of you. Yeah. So I think, well, you know, we we kind of need to find a way to liberate great teachers and great social workers and great community workers to to be that uh, collaborative change agent that oh, they nice. know they are. And I'm with you on the point about you know. Um, the skill and professionalism that, that is uh, needed as well as present that I mean it seems to me that, that, that there's a through line there may be many through lines in this but one through line is that for these sorts of um, these parts of our uh, social ecosystem that that rely on collaboration trying to manage by output um, fundamentally destroys the value it, it changes the whole nature of the relationships and how we practice yeah. and what we aim at and how we talk about success and and I think what I'm also hearing what you're saying is it creates the sort of artifice you know the, the um if you like the, the fake news of pumping numbers around a hierarchy that that ultimately don't mean what we pretend they mean um, <laughs> yes true so well, yeah it also it also has fueled um, an incredible belief in like an incredible investment in the in managerialism mm. you know and and managerialism as the most valued job financially but also in terms of status so you get 
you know, head teachers, you, you've seen the phenomenon now at least. I, there were some brilliant head teachers and they're all characterized by being devoted to their school. But then there's the, the idea of super heads and people who I could manage any school. That's what I do. I look at the data yeah. or, the, you know, the same with, you know, so we've got people who are moving around and being interchangeable. Have you delivered government contracts of any kind before? Well, you can do you can do that well wherever you go. Yeah. And and so so it's, it's almost created, the you know, an over dwelling on special specialism as a USP because because if you're not a specialist in something you won't be able to charge as much for it in the marketplace mm. so so you know this kind of this children's home is a specialist in this this school is a specialist <laughs> like the whole idea of state schools having different specialisms where did that come from well it's about market value but so you've got you've got over specialism in in the delivery that meets the person that it's meant to be for and then you've got this crazy overpaid generalism yeah. in the idea that people who, who reach such levels can do anything. Yeah, Ido yeah. Harding, anyone? <laughs> you know, like, like people moving around public sector, private sector, voluntary sector, senior roles, because, you know, it's all about the CEO. It's all about the CEO who changes everything and look at their numbers. That is a really fascinating way to look at it because I, I hadn't quite made that connection before, but in a sense, what we've done is, and this is exactly what you've just said, we've put the generalism at the hierarchical top and the specialism at the bottom. So what citizens experience is this fragmented yes. front end and at the top, arguably at the tops where we need the specialism in terms of you know being rooted in a place the you know mm. the relationships of place and so on yeah that's, mm. that's a, a fascinating one um so so just to play back to you um what i think i'm hearing so we've got this notion that there's a really good chunk of our um the ecosystem of the world life relationships and everything that's in it um that is absolutely dependent on collaboration, mutuality, and all the rest of it. But but the modern world sort of hasn't come from there. It's been set up the other way around. I think that's what I'm hearing. Um, and it, it does seem to me that there's growing awareness of the dysfunctional consequences of that. But but acting on it still ain't easy, right? <laughs> um, so so just give us a bit of a flavour, Kathy, because I know you're doing lots of things in the space of acting mm. on it. Um, and I read, um, I think it's your vision document, your strategy document, and saw what's in there. And uh, for listeners, uh, I can recommend it. it's only a few pages long, but some of the quotes from the um, the children and young people that were involved in that are just mind-blowingly good. Um, so anyway, tell us a bit about what you're doing. Well, you, you mentioned our conversation about the Declaration of Interdependence, and uh, so, so for anyone who, for listeners who might not know about it, that was something that we co-produced um, back in 2014 uh, with the TUC, with several unions. With, so we tried, we did it across public sector and voluntary sector as an attempt to say, you know, some of this, some of this inexorable drift into competitive uh, rationing and whittling down of our collective resources, we could reverse if we decide to. 
um, you know, and in, in public policy, there are often areas where you really need national government to do something like I, I want a smacking ban. That means legislating for it. Right. But in this area, like the things that can be done if you decide collectively to do it differently in a, in a place are massive mm. because actually there's relatively little that forces anyone to approach uh, human services as a market. Mm. It's a culture, it's a culture shift. Mm. And so, um, you know, I, I first came across Toby Lowe uh, through our declaration of interdependence because it expressed something that resonated with his, his work and vice versa. And that's how I came into contact with so many of you and in the human learning systems collection, uh, um, collective. And, and, you know, particularly Gary Wallace and the work in Plymouth shows exactly that spirit mm. to say, look, you know, whether or not we would like other things to come from government, should we just knuckle down for years in, Plym in Plymouth and work through how we would like to do it and, and, and get the procurement team on board, get the legal team on board so that we are talking about what we can do rather than what we can't do. And, you know, I, I won't, I, I think I know you, you either have had or will have Gary on this podcast, so I won't speak for him. But that, to me, just is such a powerful reminder that as much as I'm a, I'm a bit old in the tooth national policy lobbyist, <laughs> so much can be achieved better by just saying, we can, like, it's all right, don't need national government, let's get on with it. Like, but, and so much of this... The, the disentangling of good practice relationships from measurements and money and markets um, is philosophical. Mm. There are organizations who've been able to do it. There are whole places who've been able to do it. Um, it's not that easy. It does take a lot of working through. Mm. So I mean, and our own at Children England, since I took over, we, uh, we had lots of challenges to get ourselves into a, a sustainable place as a different or into a different kind of organism from what we were before. Mm -hmm. um, but through it, what I, had to, what I kept saying to the trustees is there are things that we need to make sure we don't do just to stay around. Mm -hmm. Because if we do, then they'll, they'll get written in to, the, the, to what we become. So we don't have KPIs, we don't agree to kind of measurement targets from our funders so we've only got funding from funders who will who will fund the way we work mm. and that might limit our growth but it it enables us to be what we intended mm. so there are lo lots of different um different ways that we want to support and encourage charities councils public sector professionals to be to understand that they could be part of the decision to work better collaboratively and without the, the the forces of new public management ruining the nature of what they're doing mm -hmm. um so 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 that's a big part of what we want to encourage and it came through just as strongly from young people that they think the really important place where we get this stuff right or wrong is local and neighborhood and in in relationship based practice in understanding mutuality and, and respecting people's capacity and action, even if they have all sorts of difficulties that they should be better treated for. You know, um, so so that following through young people's 
visions is a is it basically our mission from here out um, but that might go in all sorts of different directions we do need to influence national national decision makers but there's loads that we want to bring see if we can find uh, capacity and, and funding to to start doing some local work in different areas about what what would it look if, like if we called this village child fair or this this council child fair or this school so so that's that's one branch of it and then the other side of what we've always been doing is to try and you know maneuver the condition the operating conditions for charities out of this um this this market force version of an ecosystem mm. of what they do um and i think you know that that is i as i've said many times if you're if your mission your charitable mission is to look after children in the care system and it has been for 150 years <laughs> and you still want to do that then they you they've had to adapt to ruthless market marketization mm. and, and many of them have and because they're still needed they're still there but you can't uphold the values that you that that, that you believe in and sort of say I'm, you know like this market stuff ain't for me and still do and still pursue your mission so some parts of this charity sector are more uh, entangled and inexorably entangled in uh, the market system mm. than than some others depending mm. on their type but and how cloud how closely they have to work with the state but so we focused on trying to persistently make the case to to councils and to government that they can actually change because virtually nobody in councils now <laughs> uh, working in councils lots of them won't have been an adult let alone a professional back in the day when this wasn't how it was done yeah, yeah, yeah. so we kind of we have to create a new a new awareness that there are choices being made here and we could make different choices so i i caught a sort of scent of something there and i don't think it was what you were saying but it feels maybe an important thing to just explore which was um if it's impossible to stay true to values and mission while kind of being mm. complicit if you like in the market forces yeah. approach given that lots of i think genuinely well-intended people are working in and running organizations that are stuck in that market system is there an ethical duty on them to do something here? Is because it, 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 it one way we could regard it is well, this is just an inevitable tension, and we need to hold both sides yeah. of it. But if actually you can't hold both sides of it, you have okay. to choose. I think that's what I heard is actually we kind of have to choose. Um, well, I think I think so. Uh, I think there is, there has to be, if you, if you think that it's a relationship and even if it's not the, the, the character of the relationship that you want, mm. if you're a co contracted to deliver a public service under statute to a council, then I think it's part of the, part of your shared duty to be absolutely clear with them about how this way of constructing our relationship isn't working for children. And we can show you, and this is how, you know, we, it's not because we're failing to do our duty of looking after them. It's because look at this, we're getting, you know, like some of my members who run children's homes are getting like 60 referrals a day when they're full. Yeah. 
Let's let's imagine what that means. I it, that either that is a staggering indicator of unmet need and insufficient provision, or it's a staggering indicator of completely chaotic scattergun referral making. Mm. Either way, that's not right. You know, so it's got it's got to even if the relationship is feels inevitably designed to be a market one in a way that you have to work with the relationship about the about the children that you're working with under that contract has to be focused on saying like we see systemic problems here uh you know that it's your job to to work out how we how we change that and i can be part we can be part of that dialogue without necessarily one of the one of the things that charities can do if councils understand this is that charities don't have to they don't have to make money their bottom line mm -hmm. and they don't have to make growth their objective mm -hmm. companies do yeah you know like that's in that that's in the dna of being a private company and charities don't charities could have a 20-year strategic partnership with a council based on saying by the end of that 20 years shall we have ended the ended the need for children's homes Mm. I mean, we'll provide them while they're needed, but we agree it would be great to reduce it. Mm. Mm. Right? You can have that because it's a mission. It's a mission. It's a purpose. I, I love that answer because I think what I heard in it was this isn't a game of heroes and villains and good guys and bad guys and all the rest yeah, of it. Definitely but but not. we can choose how we turn up in these relationships. And, yeah. and it seems to me what you're describing as well is, you know, if one of the unintended consequences of managing by output is that we you know my words not yours kathy but it, we create this sort of almost conspiracy of silence where we daren't tell the truth of what's happening for fear of you know losing the contract or whatever yeah but i think all you're really suggesting is well, not all you're really suggesting but an important part of what you're suggesting is um if we just choose to be the feedback loop rather than engage in that silence um mm. things can shift yes and i think I think one of the things that I know we've talked about quite a lot in the human learning systems group is that like the, if you if you can steal yourselves and have the courage not to play the swagger game that the mm. market demands of, of services. Mm. So like, look at us, look at how great we are, look at our numbers, look at how brilliant our staff are. And, you know, we, we just are the bee's knees <laughs> at doing all sorts of great things for your children. You should come to us and buy from us. And if you can, it, it's a system driver that makes people talk like that. Mm. Um, and if you have the courage to just say, we're never going to talk like that. We are, hum we are humble enough to know that we are not, we are not the bee's knees. We've made mistakes and there are things we could do better. And if, if, if you can just make that change in how you characterize, like I'm not going to go around boasting about what we do. <laughs> mm. I'm going to go around being honest about what we do. And that, you know, that can include being, hugely proud of our staff and the philosophy that we're able to do for the children that we get to work with but we know you know they come to us for too short a time or we mm -hmm. don't always have the time and the space and the uh, to do everything that would make make a bigger difference we you know we know that we end up having to make these market decisions or kind of we know that we're we haven't grown and and there are children who need us uh, and we aren't trying to get there. You know, all of these things, it, it's a, it might seem a small shift, but 
but I think in the commissioning environment, in the market environment, if if charities can lead the way by saying we are humble and we're learning and we make mistakes and we're not going to hide that fact in the course of working out whether you're not whether or not you're going to contract us again. I think there are a lot of commissioners and council people who will actually really appreciate that. Because one of the things that I hear on the commissioning side of the equation is they feel kind of constantly under under sales pitches, essentially, um, that they know feel like they're commercially driven. And that's not necessarily coming from charities, it's like from companies, but that makes them fear that they, that that everything that providers say to them is not true. It's spin. It's market spin. <laughs> so I, I I you know every you know I think I think you could fairly easily trigger show by example a difference in the in the nature of that relationship by by committing to being humble yeah. and not and non-sales pitchy and i think it will fairly quickly trigger a comparable reaction among those you're actually selling to yeah. well i i really buy that i mean both on a theoretical level because we kind of know behavior is reciprocal so you know there's a ratcheting effect in either direction isn't there that if we play the the look how good I am game, trust the roads, and then you yeah. have to prove even more and, and off you go. But if you play the yeah. humble game, I think you're exactly right. So on a theoretical level, that makes sense to me. But even on a practical level, you, you reminded me of um, a conversation I had a few years ago with the local authority councillor. And they were saying to me, Andy, I'd, none of what the managers in this local authority tell me makes sense because I see green traffic light reports on everything. And then I go to one of my, um, you know, community clinics and I've got queues out the door of people complaining about the services that are meant to be green. So, um, so uh, that conversation jumped to mind because I remember one of the, the sort of antidotes was exactly what you've described, yeah. the, having the humility to just go and see it and, tell it how it was and start working on if you like the real issues rather than the numbers yeah yeah and I think the the the, the other side of that is commissioners could make a huge difference to the honesty and the trustworthiness of their their commissioned relationships mm. if they just said what we were going what we will value here is honesty mm. and it won't lose you your contract mm. it's more important that you're honest and 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 sharing trouble pro problems as well as successes yeah. uh, than that you meet our compliance targets Absolutely. and if you if you send out that message it, it's an immediate offer of space to just drop the facade yeah yeah so i'm imagining um there'll be those listening to this i'm sure who'll be thinking yeah exactly that's that's what we need to do. um in fact maybe the majority but but i'm sure that some listening might be thinking yeah but you know, can we do that? Is the world going to play ball with us? So, um, <laughs> so I'm interested, you know, I, doing this kind of work, I expect that there are moments or um, mm. periods of great excitement and momentum and energy and also periods of frustration and so on. So uh, if you don't mind, can I take you to the negative place first and say, you know, what are the struggles? When does it feel difficult? You know, etc. cetera. Uh. Yeah, fairly constant. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's. Uh, I don't know about you, but I mean, it, so 
my, my I'm, I've always lived and thought and been actively kind of thinking about my place in a system that is political and mm -hmm. full of ethical challenges. That's always been my that's how I was brought up and it's how I think. So just looking at our political environment for this kind of change to take place, it's not it's not amenable. Mm. You know, like the, the, there is there is there is a lot of force and belief behind the idea that the disciplines of commercial decision making com and competition are self-evidently the best way to make decisions. Mm. And I'm and I'm not just saying that, that it's not not that's not just about political ideology. I, I come across so many people who've internalized the idea that that is that is what it is to just be fair. Like if you if you didn't put things out to competition and make make a decision on what they say, then you're just operating on partiality. It's where cronyism comes in. You'll just be giving your job, giving jobs to your friends. Mm. And so I think it's and, and I get that. And as the newspapers you know, like, tell us, we've managed to avoid that perfectly. That's right. <laughs> I get that. I, I really understand it as a sense of fairness and, uh, and neutrality. I mean, I, I think it's the greatest trick the devil ever played mm. to persuade us that market market decision making is neutral. Mm. But if if we're going to equip those people to understand that there is an alternative way of doing it, and it is also still, uh, you know, an upstanding way to act as a public servant, you know, it's not it's not just stripping them away from it. We have to give them an alternative. Mm. If you're not going to come up with a service specification, put it out to tender and then just judge the tenders. How do I do my job? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so that's what, you know, I think that's that's one of the parts of it. It's not what I do. So I need to, I continually want to hear what, what commissioners need in order to, to think differently about that. That's why I love the Plymouth example. Mm. Be because, because I understand that fear. Like if this is the this is the kind of the technical tools of the job that I'm actually in. Yeah. If you take away my technical tools, what am I now? <laughs> yeah. And we have to, you know, we have to work on that. And that is a gargantuan task. And we're tiny. So, you know, some of the things, some of the ambitions to get back to your question about doubts and creeping in. And, you know, we're, um, my organisation is six people, including me. And we've set ourselves the, the objective of changing the world for children and eradicating the marketplace for charity for charities. I mean, the doubts that creep in are, are daily and sort of kind of, you know, what level of hubris have I managed to involve myself in? But we just decided that we have to we have to have aims that are clear about what we stand for. It's not about saying us six people, we're going to achieve it because there is no way of achieving it without collaborating, without mm. collaboration. So it won't be us who achieve it. It will be everyone that we manage to move along the way. And so let's be clear about where we're going because it is big and it's long-term. And if I fell, fell for the trap of saying, make them more manageable, a bit smarter, a bit more kind of feasible, then that's, that's new public management. <laughs> what, what I love about that though is in a sense, you're the scale that might be producing, you know, those doubts and so on, and um, the idea of hubris, uh, arguably, is also what keeps the endeavour honest in the spirit of everything we've just talked yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you've got no yeah, option it, but mean, to lean into collaboration and 
um, yeah. Yeah, but it, it's it's honest, and then we're humble enough to say, and that means we won't achieve it ourselves. But it is honest. That's how ambitious we are, and that's how big the change has to be. But but mainly because what you know these grids and these plans and business plans and so on. A, I can't read them. They don't make any sense to me. But B, if we're this small, and the and the 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 task of creating the culture change that we're talking about uh, is so diffuse and so you know you have to look at each context and say how how is market how is market thinking ruining this this relationship and how can we work it through mm. that's got to happen in so many different ways in so many different places mm. all we can take into those dialogues and those opportunities is our belief mm. you know our philosophy so the one thing that I don't think anyone could do is to mistake what children England believes, but you know, well, our philosophical basis. Mm -hmm. They can, you know, we might end up doing something completely different next week or next year from what we've used been used to. That's just about how we put them into action. Mm -hmm. So we haven't nailed ourselves to saying this is this is what we will do, and you will be able to see that we've had that impact. Uh, we just said this is what we will try to make happen in mm. every conversation, in every relationship that we manage to get. Awesome, love it. But that makes it, you know, like that means that I, you know one of my fears that creeps in is that I'll never see, I, I might never see the the society that I'm trying to work towards yeah. myself. Yeah. But you know that's the nature of ecosystems, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I suppose because uh, I I have. A, a similar um, sort of doubt, if you like, w with stuff that I do. And I, one of the things that occurs to me often is um, even if we ended up in that society that we aspire to, we might not recognise it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, um, well, that's the risk. One of, my, one of my very brilliant trustees, this was years ago, but he said this, I, I'm going to paraphrase, and it was much more eloquent, but he basically said, the job of social progress is never done and it cannot be yeah. but the job of the voluntary sector is to be part of part of uh simultaneously like to, we're, we're in the interstices where we're helping to address the failures and to chart a path to the best the alternative yeah, yeah because because there will never be a day when it's done the the, the the job of thinking society could be better will always be there yeah, yeah. and you know we've got we're in we're living in a phase when people you know, like Greta Thunberg has become a giant global leader. Not not because she she's sitting on top of science that nobody else knows, but because she had moral courage to speak to us about our moral cowardice. <laughs> so you know, the, the you know that 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 you know that excites me beyond beyond belief that the young people of today are lining up already seeking like their leadership position in leading their elders and i think that's the, the the uh the conversation that i had about arup and the indicator species children being the indicator species uh one of the things that i learned through conversation with arup is that they they also do eco-friendly city design so they've done some child-friendly city design and they've done eco-friendly city design and what they found after they've learned from both of them is that whichever one you do you get the other as well right so yeah. So if you do a child-friendly city, it tends up it ends up more eco-friendly, and if you do an eco-friendly city, it ends up more child-friendly. And then just after I'd had my mind blown with that conversation, 
I, I then start seeing climate strike, young people on climate strike with placards saying, we are nature defending itself. You know, and, 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 and it just, all of these things just reinforced to me that that is the right, that's the natural order. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Children being the visionaries who can see all the faults of our society and commit to change it when they're still young and passionate and idealistic, that is the right order of things. And it seems to me that's the antidote as well to, if you like, the when I asked the what are the doubts question, you know, that, that can take us in a, a negative path. But it does seem to me that even if we have to take an almost geological timescale, uh, mm. there's progress here, right? We, yeah, we, there definitely that. is. Yeah. There definitely is. Yeah. So that's that's exciting. So <laughs> so maybe just because I'm I'm looking at our time thinking we probably need to start pulling things together, but just give us a quick flavor of um the excitement the the kind of what are you most excited for at the minute Let, let's go there oh uh, well i mean on, on a really pra practical vote i mean the initial reactions that we've been having to uh, young people and the child fair state work has been enormous and i'm sitting and struggling with mismatch between our capacity and the opportunity that there is with that but i mean we're just working with some young people about giving direct evidence to the House of Lords about their, you know, about um, vulnerable children and how to come out of this crisis, uh, of the climate crisis, uh, sorry, the, the COVID crisis. So I have, a, I have a sense of kind of like an exponential potential mm. coming out of the child fair state, which I'm, I'm having to do some really, unfortunately, quite technocratic thinking <laughs> about who to bid for and how to how to swagger about it in all the ways that I'm not meant to. <laughs> um, but that is, it, it's my, it, it, uh, you know, there are points during the course of listening to young people doing that work and being part of the dialogue. I'm not ashamed to say that I cried. It, and, and with just kind of that's that simplicity and that power mm. of saying, yes, you do know everything. You know everything we need to know about this. Mm. And you have the, the, the kind of the new perspective on it where you're asking all the right questions and thinking that they're stupid questions. <laughs> and the, they're all the ones that adults really need to answer. I mean, that um, so, for sure came through in the quotes in the document yeah, that I mentioned, exactly. that it was just unbelievable, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. So, so my excitement about the potential of that knows no bounds. And, yeah. you know, not least that I think I've, through it, I've met some young people who might be future prime ministers and, and chancellors and, you know, <laughs> just, so that, that is endlessly exciting. Um, I don't know, on a more pragmatic basis, I'm, I'm excited about getting back to the office and, and starting working as a team of real human beings in the same vicinity as each other. It's, you know, I, I, what we've been able to do during the year is amazing. I don't take any of that for granted, um, but hell, I miss people. Like, you know, like I, I, I've been doing a lot of reflecting on what my, my human animal gets from being in the same room as other human animals in order to do things mm. because it, because it's definitely different and I definitely my brain hasn't been working right through zoom <laughs> yeah. uh, my, my brain doesn't process things the same way my sense of achievement and progress isn't the same yeah. even if the conversation was the same here yeah. it just doesn't I don't walk away from it going we just got things done yeah and so so I'm looking forward to to yeah re-embedding my work 
in in a real in a real group of human people <laughs> if that's not oh, i like the way you've, you've because i was thinking who'd have thought a year ago that the phrase getting back in the office would be a source of excitement yeah. but, but getting connected to people i can take that <laughs> yeah. yeah i love a little office it's just so cute you know like it, it, it to me we're on we're on a campus that is dedicated to children we've got trees outside and that sound of children playing you know birds in the birds birds singing on our balcony and inside we've just got loads of pictures uh, by children up around the wall so so it's not what many people have in their idea as the as you know the yeah, office that sounds amazing that does so um okay so i've got uh, just two final questions for you i think kathy yeah. so i've, I've been Storing up uh, probably one of the hardest to answer questions, which is for people that have been listening to us here um, and are sort of intrigued and, uh, you know, are, are maybe thinking, well, what can they do? Um, what, what's the one bit of advice from your experience that you'd share with them? Right, right. So I, I struggle, you know, I'm, I'm, I hope this isn't going to sound kind of either sort of you know trite self-help booky kind of thing <laughs> um uh, and and i would also want to say to your listeners this you know do get in touch if this stuff has has triggered your thoughts about what it means in your work because advice is always best tailored <laughs> to to specific context and i'm happy to i'm happy to give it and think about it but i suppose the thing that i've i've developed a stronger and stronger sense of throughout my career has been how important it is for me to hold my internally to me and I hold my version of how, of the world and then and then I use that as the way to interact with what I actually find because it's a you know some some people will call it a moral compass mine is a Mine is actually my brain thinks in pictures first and words second and definitely numbers last. <laughs> um, but so I have pictures for everything. And I, like I say pictures, they may not be pictorial. It might be a shape or a, mm. or, a, or a diagram, but everything from the conceptual to the practical has a picture in my head. And and when I come across when I come across new information that challenges that picture, I spend time working out what to do with that because either I need to integrate it or I need to uh, I need to revisit my picture mm. uh, and because it, you know it matters whether my what my view of the world and what matters and and the values that I have need to be challenged so but but holding that holding that and being being quite sure <laughs> that it might not it might not be everyone's truth but it's my truth mm -hmm. and it's what I bring to this experience situation conversation etc um so rather than having an externalized sense of this is what's on my agenda and what i want from you i can get into a conversation that just means this is what i'm bringing let me listen and see what see what's relevant like this conversation that we've had mm -hmm. i know you gave me gave me uh, some foresight of questions but actually the meat and bones of this conversation is just in dialogue with you and uh, and uh, you know what your questions and your points make you know where they interact with my worldview yeah. and you know so that makes for um internal integrity if nothing else you know even if you know the, i can't change the world about me immediately and i don't dis I, and i can't get agreement because other people think differently yeah. i can live with that 
if it's all been if I've been authentic to my worldview and I and and I really passionately believe in everyone having theirs and it being theirs and it's and their, and their truth and that's why I think we need to be in more honest conversations we need to allow people practice whether they're practitioners or commissioners or politicians to just be a bit more about their authentic personal worldview rather than manifestos and agendas and so on like let's let's meet with our authentic selves and have the conversations that we need to yeah thank you so much that i, re I really like that it, it, just a point of connection i've been doing um call it work really I've just been having some conversations with folk in Devon um in a little community of um we've called it a community of people rather than a community of practice because we're not currently trying to do anything other than sort of get to know each other um but one of the first things that came out there was this idea of if we speak from our own humanity if you like to other people's humanity rather than speaking from our role or agenda to someone's role and agenda the hypothesis that that we have in that group is that we'll actually be heard more humanly and that we'll get yeah. somewhere different uh, and that feels quite connected to what you're saying i think being prepared to turn up as who we are and just yeah. kind of be present in that way yeah i mean just to give you an example i've learned as a as a manager mm. um and more lastly as a ceo that you know kind i i have a whole picture of of really ruthless efficiency rationale as mm. to why I need everyone in my team not to overwork and to understand that their health comes first, mm. right? You know, as, a, as in terms of my responsibility for creating a working culture, what that comes out as <laughs> is everyone remember your health always comes first. Mm. Don't come into work sick. <laughs> Don't struggle or overwork. If you've got too much work on that you, that you can do, we need to straight back. You will not be praised or valued for overworking, <laughs> right? And so, so that's that comes out like it's me being soft and fluffy and trying to be too human and not, you know, not get on with the job. But I have ruthless logic about mm -hmm. why that means I get the absolute best out of the best people, mm -hmm. and it's proved it's proved itself to me. So, so like. I don't need to share my back my back view yeah. <laughs> like my internal workings about why i think any employer would be sensible to do exactly the same yeah they would but that's my, that that that's about my my decision about what i am responsible for i'm yeah. responsible for creating a working culture in which case i need both people to be safe people to understand what the expectations are and aren't and i need the best out of people and i get it by by making sure they understand they are a whole person to me. Mm -hmm. It'll never catch on. <laughs> <laughs> It'll never catch on. It might not catch on everywhere, but you've been human. Come on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, I love it. So there's there's an added element then, isn't there? To it's not just the thing I was drawing the connection on, but there's making our kind of where we're coming from, our, our model of the world, explicit to ourselves so that we can test it and act from it and so on. That's right, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm sure, well, I know that's good advice and I'm sure people will appreciate it, but uh, you mentioned if, um, you know, advice is best tailored to context. So I, I know that, um, you know, there are all sorts of ways that people can find out more and uh, connect mm. with you and all the rest of it. So just going down that line for a minute, if people want to do that, Cathy, what, what should they do? How should they find out more or, or connect? 
Um, well, I mean, definitely go to our website. It's www.childrenengland, all in one, .org.uk. Um, and you should find lots of stuff on there. You can definitely find our new strategy in uh, who we are um, that should give you a complete flavour of what we do. Have a browse around would be my advice. Um, but there's lots of challenging blogs and articles. There's reports about markets and in, in the care system. Uh, there's loads more about child first aid and, uh, and videos of what young people have been finding and saying to different audiences. So uh, that's a bit of a smorgasbord of, of browsing for what might interest you. I'm also a bit of a Twitterer. Um, so uh, if, you, if you are on Twitter and you want to catch up or hear the latest brain farts from me as they come <laughs> out, um, then that is, uh, I'm on at Kathy with a K underscore CEO underscore CE. So that's Kathy, Chief Exec of Children England. Yeah, so uh, I think those are probably the best two routes for now. And if anything comes of being interested in those, then then all the contact details are there to get to come Happy through days. to us more directly. Well, what, what I'll do, Cathy, is I'll put those links in the blurb that goes out with this podcast so people can find them. So um, so that's Fabulous. awesome. And, uh, and just to mention maybe one last thing is I know that we're planning to do a bit of an online workshop um, based on some of the themes we've talked about today. So we'll give that a bit of shape down the line, but uh, basically mm. if you're interested in what kathy has been talking about, uh, we'll be talking about it more and exploring it with you in that workshop on 11th of June. Um, the provisional title, Funding Interdependence, um, but uh, keep your eyes peeled folks on nextageradicals.net forward slash events and there'll be details posted there. Kathy. Thank you so much for that. I've enjoyed it. I knew I would, but, um, but yeah, I, uh, I really, it. to be yeah, honest, I, I want to keep going, but I know time's against us. <laughs> um, but we'll find excuses to catch up again soon, I hope. So thanks for joining we me We will indeed. It's my pleasure. And I look forward to meeting anyone who comes to that uh, workshop session. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts and reflections, so please tweet me at Next Radicals or get in touch at nextstageradicals.net. There you'll also find hundreds of posts and podcasts, sketch notes and stories, reports and resources, which Next Stage Radicals like you have shared as they explore what it takes to make work work better.